Adam Carter, we expect John Rash and DJ Tice to come in and uh, begin playing politics. Is this a coup by you? Have you taken over playing politics? Are they somewhere in a room right now? Uh, they're hand- feeding, they're texting me uh, thoughtful, uh, well-researched answers to the questions of the day. And I'm ready to go. Yeah. Why would we do that? We haven't done that in the 10 years we've been doing the show. I mean, we're not sure we would. I've done uh, playing politics a couple of times. You have? In your stead, as it's called. You've hosted very well. Why? Yeah. In my stead, you know. It's very good. We've got Cook walking that way, looking for John and DJ. We have John and DJ walking in the room right now. It was very comical. (laughs) Like a Benny Hill It was very. Can you give me a little Benny Hill? (laughs) I like Imitate him or the music? The, the, the yakety sack? Yeah, give me a little bit Sax? of music. Sax? I, I cannot do that. Oh, come on. I can't. Yes, yes, you can. Thank you, Adam. I'm a newsman, you're, Chad. I can, <laughs> oh, yeah, you're buff. <laughs> rock solid. Why is everybody laughing at yes, me? Yes, I don't know. Uh, Mr. Tice and Mr. Rash are both here. Always a pleasure when you join us, gentlemen. John, let me start with you. The impeachment hearings will start next week. We have three witnesses. They will take place uh, Monday. They begin. What is the significance of now that we have a start date? That the American public will hear directly from the people who were involved. And in, per- in particular, they're going to begin with Ambassador William Taylor, who was, if you'll, we can borrow a phrase, an unimpeachable witness in terms of a five-decade career dedicated to the service of this country, starting off in Vietnam as an infantry officer, all the way through being a top-ranked diplomat in the State Department, And he was directly involved in what he describes as, quote-unquote, the irregular diplomacy channel that had been set up by Rudy Giuliani, now the president's attorney, of course, as well as ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland. He is going to speak directly about that. And I think that for some Americans who the narrative is has been snippets of testimony that have been released, Mm -hmm. how it's characterized by Democrats on Capitol Hill – and the counter-narrative by President Trump forcefully coming out against the way this is being described, his allies as well, including his family, Don Jr., um, up in public rallies as well. Now you're going to hear from the people who are directly involved, and that will broaden the awareness of many Americans of what really happened in this period. What do you think, Doug? Well, I confess that uh, I'm slightly weary of impeachment theater, and the curtain's only going up. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be quite a uh, a prolonged show. I think uh, John is, is right. It will be certainly revealing to actually see these people face uh, questioning and, and questioning from, from both sides. Uh, and sometimes these hearings can be you know, quite uh, dramatic, and mm-hmm. this this certainly might be. What it surely will be, though, is some very intense uh, partisan theater. Can I, can I stop you on that? Yeah. Because in the rules, they have now designated questioning to train staff for each side to have up to 45 minutes at a time. Ah, is, that, is that the way to go, at, at, that you designate staff who will, I'm sure, put in voluminous work, who will know this very well, is that the better route to go in our search for the truth compared to the politicians, the partisan nature, and what then will take place? Well, yes. I mean, I think it is a better way to depose people in a in a legal sense and, and get at the facts. It will be more lawyerly. It will probably be somewhat drier. 
uh, and yeah. you know the fireworks will will not be quite as intense. But yeah, I mean it's a good idea in the sense that if they if they let all the members you know have their moment in the spotlight, what you would get is a lot of speechifying uh, and mm-hmm. a lot of posturing. Well, John, let me just chime in on that before you come in. Remember, the Republicans did this with an attorney in the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And then it was about a third of the way through, and they felt like the Democrats were making some hay against Brett Kavanaugh. And all of a sudden, the attorney was pushed aside, and the politicians jumped in again. Are we, are we looking at that possibility again? Well, because the Democrats are controlling this process more because they have the majority in the House of Representatives, my sense is this is a method that they favor. As D.J. rightly notes, it'll reduce, maybe not eliminate the speechifying, as he says, that may take place. Because if you remember in previous times when we've had testimony and we think of you know, the Mueller investigation and, and some of the witnesses that paraded up to Capitol Hill – where each member in the House of Representatives got five minutes, and it seemed like yeah. four minutes and 55 seconds were speeches, yeah. often self-aggrandizing or completely uh, defending or damning the president of the United States. Here I mean, where the people, politicians were literally saying, this is my time. Like the witness, no, you stay up and said, this is my five minutes. And, and they would literally say that, as yeah. you remember, right. when the witness would try to either answer the question or correct the record, yep. and and they were quickly shut down here. Now you'll have people who are less identifiable, and I think that that might be good because the people who really should be in the spotlight are those that experience this, who are under oath, and who are going to say this is what happened regarding Ukraine. But but I think, uh, Chad, you, you make a good point in that thinking back to those that Kavanaugh hearing, when you got the lawyer doing, you know, a methodical, yes. uh, well position, she certainly knew where she was going, Correct. and she was going to pin down certain facts that might, in a sense of a lit- piece of litigation, might have exactly. been very important. But it did not make compelling didn't, television. Didn't play well, and that could happen here. Yeah. It could get very dry. I mean, frankly, I think as one gets into the weeds and down the rabbit hole on this story and who said what to who and understood what and so on, uh, that, you know, we're about at the 87th most important reason people are either for or against impeaching Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, And it may not be uh, that compelling. So, John, I want to talk about uh, Lindsey Graham here. Lindsey Graham is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He has won throughout most of his career. He's always been a Republican, but he was never shy taking on hypocrisy. He was never shy about taking on his own party. And even during the presidential campaign, which he was in, he called out President Trump over and over again. Now, outside of some rare skirmishes uh, on international issues, he is as loyal as can be. So yesterday we have Gordon Sondland dramatically revising his testimony. And then saying in his eyes, this was a quid pro quo. And the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee told the public, I don't care what he said. I'm not even going to read any of the testimony. What is going on here? A dereliction of duty, which is a term that Senator Graham should know well, considering the number of years that he spent in the United States Army. He is a United States senator, one of 100, who gets the privilege of being in the most respected deliberative body in the world. And when you have an impeachment inquiry and something as with the gravitas that that this process should have, 
and you have the one key witness who, in effect, said had a narrative that was different from the career diplomats and military officers who have come forward, now revise his testimony and, in effect, concur, and then you have someone of the consequence of Senator Graham say, I'm not even going to listen to it or read it or take this into account. I think that that shows just how far down the line from this never happened, there was no quid pro quo, to, well, maybe there's a quid pro quo, but it's not impeachable, you know, to the next stages in the defense of the president. What we have going on here is that the Republicans defending President Trump want to talk about process and not the president. And the Democrats who are investigating this want to talk about the president and what happened with his in, within his administration, which is why, to go full circle in the conversation here, having attorneys do the questioning might get more to the absolute truth of the matter yeah. and let the American <clears throat> public decide. Ultimately, of course, the United States Senate and House will have to decide on where to go with this as well. Doug, hang on, because I yep. want to ask you if we're headed to the name of the whistleblower coming out in the main. Because it appears that if you go to some of the other recesses of the Internet, you can find the name. But more and more people are saying it's time, it's time, it's time. To me, it's, it's just a matter of days before the whistleblower's name will be out there. Let's talk about that with DJ Tice and John Rash from the Star Tribune after this short pause on CCO. All right, Doug, let's get right to it. Um, I guess we were talking off air. Don Trump Jr. today has tweeted out a link to an outlet. That is reportedly put out the name. Right. Okay. Um, Rand Paul, when he's speaking with the president the other day, is pointing at the media. Put the name out there. Put the name out there. Rand Paul, I saw him uh, answering questions aggressively from Brett Baer. Good reporter. Why don't you just put the name out there? And he keeps saying, I may. And he keeps saying when people are asked, isn't this a violation of law? He goes, no. It's only a violation of law if the inspector general would turn over the name not the president, not a senator. So it's just a matter of when, right? Well, it's hard to imagine, given the lack of, of guardrails you know, on, on media sourcing uh, today, that this will be able to, the confidentiality be, will be able to be maintained in, indefinitely. So, yeah, you would think that it would leak out at some point. And then, of course, the various levels of the media will be confronted with the dilemma of the names already out do? there. What do you do? Are we going to be the last ones to report it and 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 discuss it? And you know, so probably it it does go out there. I mean, it's another question whether it, uh, it becomes public through any official channel. Yeah, and that of course is governed by by federal law and uh, and as it should be. You know, whether the the name is of any significance to the case is not entirely clear to me. It kind of depends, I guess, on whether the credibility of the whistleblower is an important factor in yep. the, the believability of the charges, uh, or is the whistleblower simply directing at people's attention to documentary evidence? If the credibility is important, well, then you would... That's it. If it were a criminal trial, you would want the jury to be able to judge that person's credibility, which goes to some degree to their identity and background. And so well, John, that, that's it, because in some of these reports, they're, they're, they're talking about this person with Biden, with other things and trying to just uh, besmirch credibility and bias. Well, as DJ just nailed it, we now have had testimony after testimony after testimony, which is picked up on what the whistleblower said 
and only extended it. It's like when the president says the call was perfect. If that was it, and by the way, again, it's not a testimony. It's a memo from his staff. And none of this other testimony amounted to to, to raising serious issues. Then this all would have faded. It's, it's your point before. The process as opposed to the what the words actually are and what the actions were. Testimony from nearly a dozen diplomats and military officers should make the whistleblower him or herself irrelevant because nearly everything that first came out in that whistleblower report has been confirmed and then some, and we'll see it live starting a week from today when they have these public hearings. But there are two universes transpiring concurrently, and one is what's happening on Capitol Hill with these witnesses, with official Washington, and the other is the defense of the president, and if they can besmirch the reputation or the motives of the whistleblower and try to make that appear to be, as the president has continuously said, one great hoax or a witch hunt or whatever verbiage he uses on any individual day, that fits into the Republican defense that it's an attempt to overturn the 2016 election. And it's an attempt to rally the base, to shore up the base, and in two ways, the electoral base for the 2020 election, but perhaps more profoundly for the president, the Senate base, because they probably believe at this point that they that the president will be impeached by the House of Representatives, which is under Democratic control, and he needs to maintain enough senators, two-thirds of them, to not be removed from office. That seems highly likely. But they also don't want to have the threshold where you have three or four Republican defections Mm -hmm. and then a majority of the United States Senate would have voted to remove if that's what it comes to is here. And by shoring up the electoral base, they think that perhaps it keeps senators in line in their own party and that they won't stray as they didn't in the House vote that just happened about a week ago. Let's go local here. And, uh, DJ, this is almost becoming a regular uh, feature of playing politics where your paper breaks another story about the DHS. Mm. And excellent reporting again. The DHS broke state law 200 times. How um, is this incompetence? And how are these lengthy uh, violations law continuing to happen? Well, clearly there was a culture uh, of long standing at that agency of uh, slipshod handling of uh, of record keeping and of millions of dollars of uh, taxpayer funding, and it had been going on uh, for some time uh, under at least the previous administration. I guess we'll find out more as time goes by as to how far back and how deep it goes. But I mean, it's clearly an endemic. Uh, cultural problem at that agency. And, you know, one after you, what we've seen at, you know, Minlar's and the health department with the uh, mm-hmm. uh, failure to investigate so many abuse cases, uh, you kind of get the feeling that it's not uh, unique to DHS, that there is yeah. a, just a fundamental <clears throat> uh, bureaucratic uh, dysfunction uh, in state government, and it needs some systemic Reform. One also begins to wonder with the uh, uh, departures of, of Tony Laurie at DHS after just six months with obviously some uh, sabotage yes. uh, from uh, some of the top aides there and the recent departure of uh, Nora Slawick from the Met Council after the ouster of uh, Brian Lamb before that. 
uh, you, you, you start to wonder if, if we're seeing evidence of that and evidence that perhaps we have a governor who doesn't really know his way around St. Paul, well, as I, well as somebody, yeah. say, like Mark Dayton did, who, well, who'd been involved there for many, many decades. I know this. Paul Gazelka, Kurt Doubt, many Republicans are going to focus on this. They would like to be in session right now to talk about this. They've done some of this. This is going to become a big story for Republicans in an election year and saying, you know, eight years of Mark Dayton, year and a half of Tim Walsh, look at what's going on. So a whole lot will depend on how Governor Walsh and how the Democrats in the House respond to this. And if they overlook it or try to deny it or try to defend it, it's not going to shine well on them. Conversely, if they move forward and say very clearly, many things are not working here, and we have to think about reform. We agree with you, Republicans. Let's reach across the aisle and try to do something. And Governor Walls has hinted at at least the prospect of breaking up DHS into smaller units. And that might be something that Senator Gazelka and, and Representative Dowd, as an example, might actually embrace. So it could be quite compelling to see what happens. But there might actually be some positive reform that comes from this. But there's no doubt that it does not look good at this point. And whether or not voters as well as legislators blame Governor Walls for this, it's on his watch at this point, and he's got to make That's a place to clean it up. You're right, because he's told me and others about these changes, uh, and they may endorse those changes, but they're also going to uh, they're going to go for their pound of political flesh on this one about what was taking place under your watch. Well, sure, and you're right. They've got uh, you know the eight years of the Dayton administration to work with. Yeah, um, as it's pretty hard to lay this at the feet of. Uh, you know, the most recent Republican governor yeah. who's, you know, a couple decades ago. Yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> Gents, thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Always great to have both these gentlemen on the air. Playing politics, D.J. Tice and John Rash. Check it out, Star Tribune, startribune.com, and also right here on WCCO, either live or WCCORadio.com.